Welcome to the PKN Podcast, where we give you the wrap on all things packaging. Welcome to the PKN Packaging News Podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and as ever, I'm joined by Lindy Hewson, Managing Editor and Publisher of PKN Packaging News and the host of this show. G'day, Lindy. Can you please tell us about our topic and our guest for this episode? Hi, Grant. Yes, it's been a, a couple of weeks since you and I spoke. We were last at the AIP conference doing the live podcast from there. And um, I'm really pleased to be having this conversation today because it is one of the most frequently discussed topics, not only on this podcast, but also on the news pages of PKN. And that's the 2025 National Packaging Targets. And as this podcast goes live, the Australian Packaging Covenant Organization, that's APCO as we know it, has released its review of the targets, in which it calls for a stronger co-regulatory model, which will strike a balance between industry-led action and effective government regulation. Now, here to tell us precisely what this means and to talk us through some of the key findings of the review is APCO CEO Chris Foley. Chris, welcome to the PKN podcast and to what I'm sure will be one of many interviews you'll be conducting over the next few days. Thanks for letting PKN get in first. No, no, thank you, Lindy. It's my pleasure. Um, obviously, APCO's review of the uh, the 2025 National Packaging Targets, it's incredibly timely, as you just referenced, for anybody involved in packaging. Um, the review considered feedback from over 500 individuals, uh, many of whom I'm sure are listening, and also organisations around the country late last year, along with a whole lot of information and analysis. So we've considered a whole lot of inputs. Um, now, and for, uh, through that process, we've heard some really fantastic uh, contributions from across the packaging system. But the, then the reality is, um, with, that, with that in mind, those contributions in mind, it is actually disappointing that the headline data indicates that the targets um, won't be met uh, by December 2025. Okay, so um, let's take a look at that. So we have a lot of ground to cover and we're going to get straight to the important bits. So the review delivered four key findings and the first, as you mentioned, comes kind of as no surprise. We are not on track to make the targets by end of 2025. Which target, Chris, is presenting the biggest challenge and why? Certainly the, the biggest challenge that we see is target number two. And that's um, the objective to, to achieve 70% of plastic packaging being recycled or composted. Uh, now, the recovery rate for packaging um, that was recorded through the process is at 18%. So there's a 52% gap. Uh, that's, a, that's a significant delta. Recovery for flexibles was only at 7% um, or 40,000 tonnes. That's reported in 2020, 2021. Uh, so all the data that was used was for 2020, 2021, and we'd need to be recovering uh, 408,000 tonnes by December 2025, which is an additional three, um, 370 tonnes, 1,000 tonnes. Um, recovery for rigid plastics is at 26%, or well, that's equivalent to about 167,000 tonnes. Um, so we would need to actually pick up an additional 486,000 tonnes by December 2025. Both flexibles and rigids, um, their volumes are also expected to increase. So in addition to the low rates, we're actually in forecasting increased volumes being put into the market. I think on the compostables front, and just to deal with that, that right up front, many members are trying to do the right thing to avoid packaging going to landfill. 
Um, now, with, when it comes to compostables, though, it is a really complex space with a number of different stakeholders and different regulatory um, and collection and reprocessing environments across Australia. So certainly we recognise that certified compostable packaging does have a role to play in a circular economy, um, particularly when supporting the recovery of food waste. There are several barriers that first need to be overcome, and that's why we've, we've sort of begun the process of consulting with industry and government to develop a, a compostable packaging roadmap. So we're certainly not expecting a lot of activity on the compostables. Would you like me to uh, do a deeper dive into flexibles and or rigid plastics for you, Lindy? Yes, in fact, both of them, Chris. Flexibles, as we know, has been a really kind of contentious issue lately, but we do know there's some exciting things in the in the um, offing. And rigids, we've had a lot of advances in terms of infrastructure coming online in the last while, which might not have been recorded in those figures. Co- correct, correct. You're right on both fronts. What I'll do is I'll look at both of them through um, a systems lens. So we'll look at design, use, collection, et cetera. So certainly on the flexibles front, we've got, um, obviously from a design point of view, key recyclability gaps are uh, PET and PVC flexible formats, and there's about 34,000 tonnes of those. We've also got uh, polypropylene labels, and there's 13,000 tonnes of those, um, which are all opportunities um, for, for work to be done. On the use front, uh, we've obviously got uh, regional um, examples of work being done by the National Plastics Recycling Scheme. They're piloting a number of initiatives at the moment. Obviously, that wasn't happening back uh, during the, the period of the reporting. Um, so there are pilot there are pilots happening around curbside collection, and all the more important that those those move forward in light of red cycle. On the collection front. Even though um, when RedCycle was operating, we now know that clearly its volumes weren't in the grand scheme of things that significant. Um, there is actually a massive opportunity that we've identified through the collection of, of soft plastics, flexibles through B2B, uh, such as pallet wrap. And in fact, there's, a, there's about 83, 85,000 tonnes in that space, uh, with 80% of it going to landfill. On the reprocessing front, um, we need circa 410,000 tonnes of reprocessing capacity to be coming into the market for flexible plastics. Um, we can certainly see, as you mentioned, there are a lot of developments happening, particularly post-red cycle. We're just now waiting for a number of those to be confirmed uh, and business cases to be signed off. There will then be a time lag between when they get signed off and when when those facilities get commissioned. But there is there is some pretty strong movement coming forward. We prior to Christmas uh, last week of December, I think there was an announcement by Lysella as one small example of that. On the LDP film front, there's a capacity shortfall of two hundred ninety-two thousand tons, um, which is disappointing considering that that from our point of view, ninety-eight percent of of that material should be recoverable and recyclable. As far as end markets go, uh, and obviously the reality is something's not worth collecting and recycling unless there's an end market, um, Flexible Plastics has a target of 10% recycled content by 2025, but only 1% um, was post-consumer recycled in 2021. The, uh, the whole concept of returning used packaging back into food-grade packaging is challenging and expensive and really capital-intensive but it does remain the North Star. Just from a circular point of view, uh, while it's great that we've got a lot of smaller, almost um, cottage industries around, which was really the, the, the approach that existed around Red Cycle with, 
with small um, applications that were non-packaging. The reality is um, the packaging industry needs to take ownership of this material. If you want to use these materials, then you are going to need to create an environment where they're worth collecting, worth reprocessing and bringing back into your, mater- into your packaging. Um, again, the challenges are there for that. Referencing um, certainly the Australian Food and Grocery Council's National Plastics Recycling Scheme is a really good example where we can see that brand owners want to do the right thing. They're prepared to pay for it. Um, and that's an initiative that hopefully can be supported uh, and can get up. In reality, what will the channels of collection be? Um, if, if, if demand does grow and there is there are a lot of brand owners that want to, want to use it, their issue is access particularly access for domestic produced material. Um, That's exciting. From a circular economy point of view, that's where we want to be. Um, So we've now just got to make sure, create the market environments, also create the stewardship environment where that can play out so the material's worth collecting. And what about rigids? So certainly on the rigids fronts, from a design point of view, um, a key recyclability gap is is uh, PET and PP tubs, trays, punnets, about 78,000 tonnes there largely due to limited collection. Um, while design may be part of the solution, uh, an end market would pull material through. If Again, if something's worth collecting, people will find where it is. Other design challenges do include materials and colours used in packaging, um, closures and labels, which impact sortation and end market value. Um, and certainly that's the case with high-density polyethylene with a recoverable by design gap of about 33,000 tonnes. Again, that's what we were reporting in 2021. Um, from a use point of view, high, higher recycling rates for container deposit schemes compared to municipal um, solid waste materials highlight the lack of financial incentives, um, inconsistent messaging, and, comp- and, and also just the complexity for households and brand owners operating nationally. Um, CDS certainly is very effective, but at the moment, every state's got a slightly different version of, of the truth. Um, from a collection point of view, certainly widespread um, CDS and uh, and municipal solid waste coverage for high value uh, like PET and HDP bottles, but there is less so for um, for thermoform PET and other materials, including tubs, trays, punnets, um, and and uh, LDPE and polypropylene bottles and jars. Again, opportunities on the reprocessing front. Polypropylene is it is a key challenge. There's 137,000 tons. Um, with a projected gap of 84,000 in 2024-25. And that's all related to a lack of sorting and reprocessing in limited end markets. Um, That said, there's certainly some great work being done. Um, Next Tech, more out of their European operations, um, are leading the way with some groundbreaking work in this space with polypropylene. So so there's encouraging news, I suspect, coming through um, from Ed Cozier and Kelvin and the team. On the end markets front, PET has a recycled content target of 30% for 2025, while HDPE and polypropylene have targets of 20%. Um, now, currently, PET has uh, post-consumer recycled content averaging 11, while high-density polyethylene and propylene are, are at 3% respectively. So the, the demand for recycled PET for packaging does exceed supply as, uh, as export bans take effect prior to planned reprocessing capacity coming online, um, and that's still playing through. There's also strong demand for for recycled high-density polyethylene. Um, We're certainly hearing there is latent demand for food-grade polypropylene and thermoform PET. 
um, with supply for with supply um, being the constraining factor on those guys. So what I'm hearing, there's some there's some glimmers of hope. Um, there's certainly some good projects underway. You referenced Next Tech and the Next Loop work for polypropylene. Um, we know about the Circular Plastics Australia PET infrastructure that's online. So, um, but the gaps are still significant, which brings us to the second finding. Looking beyond 2025, there's a call for a longer-term vision to guide the action. So what are the pillars of that vision, Chris, and how do you see APCO helping industry and government achieve consensus on how to overcome some very significant challenges which you've referenced, not least of which is inconsistent policy that has, has been creating a fractured framework which hinders progress? Great question. Um, certainly following the member feedback sessions that we had, it was clear that the system needs uh, to know where we're heading post-2025 and so that all stakeholders can align and make investment decisions, um, whether you're a, a brand owner, uh, somebody needing to install new equipment, um, somebody needing to, to lock in new formulas. Um, these all take time and cost. Uh, with that in mind, um, I'll outline what we see as, as a whole of system sort of approach to, to a circular economy for packaging. Um, again, I'll, I'll work, work at that through the, the, uh, the stages of, of the packaging system. So from a design perspective, we need to have packaging design that's aligned with recoverability and in markets. Um, that enables brand owners to make confident long-term investments in packaging, but also the, the, the supporting infrastructure uh, providers. Certainly from our point of view, strengthening the sustainable packaging guidelines um, and having businesses use those um, and essentially having those as mandatory um, would just facilitate alignment um, and the whole concept of competitive disadvantage goes away. Um, that's going to require establishing clear standards um, for packaging reductions and circularity. We're working on that through material roadmaps um, that, that really do set a North Star over the horizon. Uh, and obviously also we're, we're working through strengthening the sustainable packaging guidelines themselves to essentially get them um, uh, so regulatory ready. On the usage front, consumers are certainly incentivised. Um, we need to have consumers that are incentivised and educated to source, separate packaging at home or away uh, via clear, consistent labelling uh, and or other financial financial incentives. Um, clearly, again, CDS is, is hugely successful, albeit expensive, um, and it's just a case of where and how can that be deployed versus where, where and how can other channels be deployed. Um, but I come back to the concept of curbside. It's a national asset that could and should be be used um, more effectively to, to help with, with creating circular systems for packaging. Um, there's also increased, um, certain we see increased business recycling uh, to address key material gaps in that space. We've got cardboard, we've got a lot of clean cardboard and also a lot of clean um, uh, flexible plastics. Um, what is, what's all that going to require? It's obviously incentives to, uh, to incentivise avoidance um, re and reduce uh, and correct disposal of packaging use um, through essentially having nationally, ideally nationally consistent consumer education and incentives and also targets actually for, for business to business recycling. I think on the, on the collection side, um, a vision from our perspective is that that we do have a nationally consistent and comprehensive collection framework 
that does actually allow more effective and efficient labelling and education. Um, it allows uh, more effective design for recovery. It also decreases contamination in the recovery system <clears throat> to maximise recovery. I mean, if we can get the design matched with better harm, better linked with the collection, uh, it just makes good sense. Um, and now, again, the problem at the moment with the, the co-regulatory model or the regulatory framework is that APCO is focused on a particular part of the system, but there are much more. There are many more stakeholders and, and participants um, that aren't. And this is just a big opportunity that we're excited about with the regulatory review that's underway. Is how can we actually bring the bring a, a more systems approach into play? Um, so, coming back to um, one other piece around the collection, I think that that needs to be called out is the need for high-performing um, extended producer responsibility schemes that are implemented by industry for materials not widely accepted at curbside, um, and, and that could include polystyrene um, and and certainly things like your soft plastics, um, and it's not just off the back of red cycle. Um, if, we, if, if industry wants, if businesses want to be continuing to use flexibles in particular, then they are going to need to... to, um, to um, use those materials and create circularity um, and that's going to come at a cost. So um, <clears throat> ideally, what does all that mean? Obviously establishing an efficient and comprehensive national collection framework for packaging that includes uh, a nationally harmonised cu uh, curbside recycling, large-scale national collection of flexibles, um, effective and accountable extended producer responsibility for materials that aren't widely collected, uh, and certainly reusable, compostable and away from home collection pathways. Um, and that needs to also then be underpinned by relevant data collection and, and publication. So lots of opportunity in that space. Um, as far as the, the, re, um, the reprocessing and a vision for reprocessing, the, uh, the reprocessing capacity um, scoped and established for remaining capacity gaps has to include, like we've got flexible plastics, there's currently 493,000 tonnes Rigid polypropylene, you've got 109,000. Paper and paperboard, there's 1.1 million. Um, so it's interesting that, that with paper and paperboard, there's 1.1 million tonnes going to landfill, which is actually not far off the amount of plastic that goes into the market. So although we all think that paper and cardboard, certainly in the at the moment with, with plastics being demonised, um, let's not lose sight of the fact that there's there's over a million tonnes that goes to landfill still. Um, formats including tubs, trays and punnets, there's 82,000 tonnes there. So the technology innovations for return to food grade packaging um, need to be scaled at pace. And we've, we've already touched on this. Lots of work happening, lots of really exciting things coming. It's now how they how that all converts. Um what does what do all of those opportunities mean? Certainly, it's investment in reprocessing infrastructure, particularly around flexibles, rigid polypropylene. Um, how do we take out of the market that paper and or how do we take out of landfill that paper and paperboard? Um, and then key formats, including tubs, trays, and punnets. Uh, as far as the end markets go, and again, uh, you don't have recycling unless you have end markets and values. Um, Long-term demand for recycled materials underpinned by regulatory intervention where necessary. Um, in, that will increase the value of the material and create market pull-through. If we can't achieve that market pull-through, 
why why would somebody collect it? Why would somebody invest their time and effort in cleaning, sorting, reprocessing? Um, so that's got to happen, and it is just in a case of how can that regulatory intervention happen without it being a blunt UK plastics tax. Action that has to be taken, Chris, and one of the actions that we have been hearing a lot about lately in all the conversations that are happening at all the forums is collaboration. So the review has found that we won't overcome the barriers to progress without collaboration and cooperation between industry and government across the entire packaging system. So this implies a much broader ambit than the current co-regulatory focus that you've had, which has been more uh, leaning towards packaging design. Can you tell me a bit more about or elaborate on this whole collaborative notion? Yes, Lindy, I mean, Keith Binding 3 talks to the need for, as you just said, collaboration, cooperation between industry, government, across the entire packaging system to overcome barriers and progress. I mean, that we can't achieve that without collaboration. Um, packaging circularity needs active engagement and coordination to drive uh, effective change across the packaging system. It's not going to happen just on its own. Many industries and sectors participate and influence the outcomes and there has to be some sort of central coordination of that. So certainly from from um, from an APCO point of view, compliance with regulatory ob obligations under the framework have not been enforced by all governments. Um, that's under the current arrangement. Um, and we've, we've certainly had uh, free riders probably in a couple of guises. One is businesses that just choose not to participate, not to play the game. But even within the membership, we've we've had a lot of existing members through the the engagement process late last year call out where this whole concept of a tick box mindset or mentality by their competitors who may be members of APCO and on paper they tick the box, but in reality they're not really taking a lot of hard action, which is actually then becomes a disincentive for the rest of the market. So certainly compliance with regulatory under obligations under the existing framework. Um, it, it's there's, it's missed a, missed a couple of opportunities around standardisation for um, standards for recyclability agreed by all sectors, harmonisation of curbside recycling with input um, and output standards, um, output standards for reprocessing infrastructure, um, incentives for uh, for use of recycled content, um, incentives for packaging avoidance, reuse, um, and and the correct disposal uh, by users. So. Bringing all of this together, as far as the regulatory framework, obviously it's not APCO's decision. Government's doing their review at the moment um, of the co-regulatory framework. Um, from an APCO perspective, there is a, just a significant opportunity to refine and um, we've got some incredible assets within the existing um, arrangement for APCO, like the Sustainable Packaging Guidelines, that um, are sitting there able to be, if there was a, a stronger regulatory framework around those, um, one, they could actually be used to then leverage uh, the market mandate, the sustainable packaging guidelines to drive exactly what material goes into the market, exactly what level of recycled content needs to be coming through. That in turn drives market demand, which in turn drives market value and investments. One of the big missing links, the missing parts of the current framework, though, is who's actually in, who's in scope of what the system is. 
how do we actually define what the packaging system is? We know and we've seen that um, if we've got 87% of packaging landing in the Australian market, it's actually considered to have a good recyclability. But we also know that we don't have 87% of that material being collected. That relies, though, on stakeholders that are beyond the remit of APCO. Um, so certainly there's an opportunity for government to think about how how that could possibly be reframed to have um, a broader set of stakeholders with uh, relevant um, and effective uh, obligations right across the system that are that are harmonised so that it does actually work as a system. Um, this is much bigger than any one of us. It's much bigger than a brand owner or a packaging company or a MRF or a collector or a recycler or a reprocessor. Um, so we're certainly acknowledging that the current system needs to be refined. We're suggesting uh, and very open to the conversation around how the, the current co-regulatory arrangements could be strengthened and believe there's a lot of merit in that. Um, and, it, I mean, a classic example is, is say, what happened with Red Cycle, a really well-intended program, but um, it, was out, it wasn't in APCO's remit to be monitoring that program. Um, it's currently not in APCO's remit to be monitoring packaging that lands in market. Um, we could and should be actually able to evaluate the effectiveness of a, a product stewardship scheme so that members and participants in that scheme know that it's working. Um, and, and there's transparency around what it's actually, what its KPIs are, but also how it's performing against those. Similarly, with the, um, the packaging, to be honest, what lands in markets actually most important versus what somebody puts into a report. They've considered the sustainable packaging guidelines. There's a big difference between that and what you're actually putting on shelf. Um, we need a co-regulatory framework that then allows enforcement and action against those sort of scenarios um, that also then creates an environment where MRF operators want to invest, the, re the recyclers want to invest. Um, they'll want to invest if if they know that the materials are worth collecting and or reprocessing. Um, so there's change needed across the whole board. It's certainly not a case of, from my point of view, I don't want this to be seen as the problems over there. Yeah. Um, the, the problems across the board. And this is this is a once in 24, 25-year opportunity to reset. I mean, the covenant's been around for that period of time. Um, this is once in a lifetime opportunity for the system to reset. And we're certainly keen for the government to now look at that um, and be open to to a new way of working, which I know that they are. So really one of the, the let's move on to that fourth crucial finding and <clears throat> which kind of hints also at the loaded concept, doesn't hint at it, it implies the loaded concept of intervention. So to what extent we need mandated intervention perhaps is really where we're going with this. So the review calls for strong and coordinated interventions on essential packaging material streams. So what exactly does this mean, Chris? And what is the likelihood of government intervention to the extent that has been hinted at by the Environment Minister? The Environment Minister, and it's not just uh, Minister Plibersek, I think they're all wanting to see action and we're all like within the industry within the sector as we were just discussing about the need for, for collaboration everybody also is recognizing that this is actually really complicated and there's been a lot of good endeavor but it's not landing um, there's been a lot of goodwill that it's not converting um, so certainly we're, we're expecting that um, 
when when the ministers at the the next environment ministers meeting review the progress of of the national packaging targets um the time is very ripe in their minds for a really serious reset of um of the the co-regulatory landscape but again that's an opportunity to strengthen it um and to build on and to take it to the next level the interventions though um there will be interventions there has to be interventions the challenge we've seen is from a lot of members again it comes back to this idea of, of free riders and just trying to create a better a, a more level playing field for all um, so that there's not a disincentive um, and and costs are costs are actually genuinely being shared shared through the system um, we've all got to if we again packaging serves amazing um, Without packaging, a whole lot of things wouldn't be possible. So, it's it's not as simple as just saying eliminate packaging. Um, the the role that packaging plays is essential, and that then comes with responsibilities. So, what about here's an example of some kind of mandating or legislating around a simple thing like if you if you use a material that makes something less recyclable, for example, a, a glue on a label. Um, that adheres to a plastic bottle, for example. Can we can we see that level of intervention coming in that says by X time uh, or by X date, industry may no longer use labels of that nature when other labels do exist that make it possible to recycle a product? Absolutely. I think that the whole concept, and that's where we're moving into um, developing material roadmaps for exactly this reason, that uh, if we can send the signal to the market within a, a defined period of time that's not on the never-never, that says, listen, by this date, you need to have transitioned out. The challenge then is um, under the current arrangements, um, how, would we t- how would we test that? How would we prove? And that's what we're saying. That there's some really constructive opportunities in this for um, tightening of the regulatory framework to enable APCO to say, listen, here's here's the material roadmaps, here are the sustainable packaging guidelines that reflect those roadmaps, and each year those guidelines get ratcheted up or reset um, to reflect both the capacity within the system for collection and for reprocessing and sorting and reprocessing, um, but also to, to reflect the fact that new materials are, are available. Um, one, of the, I think one of the challenges with with packaging is that we need innovation, we need competition. We're also playing in a global space, and to have a um, to have just a the current arrangements thrown out and replaced with some sort of central authority would stymie um, would create bureaucracy gone mad and stymie innovation and the ability to move at pace and or the ability to understand all the dynamics that are at play, um, both globally and domestically, with technology and innovation at every level of the value chain. So, but again, through through material roadmaps that are developed with industry input from across the system, and that's what we've now got, we've, we've established six material stewardship committees made up of subject matter experts and opinion leaders in relevant areas, so they're by material type. Um, and they're now looking at how do they develop sort of two, three, five, and seven-year roadmaps that do allow industry clarity. Um, mm, mm. But that's and this is all in response to the, the dynamics that are at play. Um, now, if we could then have those material roadmaps and the supporting um, 
sustainable packaging guidelines essentially mandated, that's really going to drive a lot of action um, and a reset of packaging landing in market. Do you, as APCO, will you be um, working uh, with government and to try to make that happen? I oh, think obviously we're we're having open conversations with government. We're also starting to have open conversations with the rest of the system. Um, again, this is not a case of um, it's not a membership grab. It's not a. It's just a case of we've got to fix the system. Um, there's got to be a smarter way to do this, and it's only going to come through conversations with WAMA, with ACOR, with NGOs. Um, that all have an opinion, all have stakeholders that on the surface this would look really confronting and and quite um, uh, the way there's some sort of land grab. It's not that at all. It's just a case of saying, listen, if, if we can't actually sit down and have some really mature conversations, my success as a CEO of APCO is that MRF operators and recyclers are investing and in upgrading their plants and facilities um, because without that, there's no circularity for packaging. So I actually want to drive their businesses and their business models. We've just got to rethink how we can work together so that it's not seen as I think there's been a, a fair bit of them and us. Mm, mm. But from APCO's point of view, my success is actually seeing um, sectors outside of packaging um, invest and flourish. But if you take it a step then beyond the MRF, obviously, so the MRFs are doing that, but then we come back full circle to that essential pull-through. How do we work with industry to create that demand for to buy that product? But, but that's where if, if we can have through the sustainable packaging guidelines, if, if they were to be mandated, and they would be matched with with a roadmap, a material roadmap that said over the next five years or out to twenty thirty, um, this was to be the the recycled content level, and each year it was ratcheted up. Then, again, if we were able, if that was able to be then mandated and enforced and and assessed, um, and members held to account, and this is where the regulatory interventions then required. Um, so I'm not pretending it's going to be easy and some people would say, oh, that's Nirvana and that's like just pie in the sky, Chris. Stop uh, smoking whatever you smoke. Whatever. Not, 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 not that I'm smoking and not that I'm ever okay, okay. a smoker. <laughs> we'll be clear. <laughs> but give me some of um, that, please. <laughs> but, 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 but it is a case of that's if, for Australia to achieve a circular economy for packaging. We're going to – this is much bigger than – much bigger than APCO – and it is going to take some really decent, but again, I, I don't think that that ob, that objective is probably too far distant from, um, say, what Gail's trying to achieve for her WAMA membership, and or what Suzanne's trying to achieve for a core, and or what if you look at the the, the plastic sector, um, they're desperately keen to to invest and reinvest in assets um, that might currently be producing virgin polymers. But the next big opportunity for them is actually to be reprocessing or to be processing recycled polymers. Um, now, for that to happen, they need certainty of feedstock. Where do we get 400,000 tonnes of soft plastic? Um, they also need certainty of end markets. So we've got two big challenges. The end markets piece is really then a positioning in and around the brand owners. You could argue that's really the, the APCO's world at the moment and that's where I think the the whole concept of 
product stewardship and how APCO can support product stewardship. We don't want to be a product stewardship operator for everything, not quite the opposite, but whether it's the NPRS or other stewardship schemes, there's a fabulous opportunity for us to um, create an environment where there is transparency and integrity in those schemes, help them set up, have them led by industry, have KPIs that are then able to be um, monitored and enforced by APCO but that those KPIs are all about driving market demand and the reuse of um, of polymers, in that instance, polymers back into flexible plastic. Um, if that can actually be achieved where you've got uh, major plastics manufacturers, they're, they're having to make $100 million investments or hundreds of millions of dollars. So the business case that they're asking for, that they're expecting is is way beyond um, some of the the smaller cottage industries that we've seen. Um, And they will need that certainty that the big brands in Australia are going to back it and will be using recycled plastics. What is filtering through is a strong call to action that is well beyond the scope and magnitude of what has been undertaken to date. You are telling me that there's a, the NEPM reviews underway um, and that you ha- are having these conversations with members, with stakeholders, with government as well. What are the next steps? What is the ne- very next thing that you as CEO of APCO are going to do? So certainly APCO's got, uh, we've recently had our board sign off um, a two horizon strategy. And the first horizon is between now and 20, the end of 2025 with the national packaging targets, there's, and I won't go through all the micro detail, but there's nine key elements to that strategy, one of which involves APCO doing a big reset, a reset of its organisation structure and its capabilities and its capacity. Um, That's well underway. Um, So we're strengthening at the moment. So we're putting uh, additional new resources, particularly around packaging technology, but also how we engage with the waste and the, the recycling sector, um, data, data analytics, um, and also product stewardship strategy. Um, so we're certainly reframing and strengthening to be able to service better. It's also then being much more targeted for us in and around material streams, um, which I've mentioned a few times, but how we look at data, how we actually analyse data, how we provide that then to, to, to the markets to help them inform their own business decisions um, and hopefully convert into investments. Um, through those, through that new look of or new approach to data analytics, we're then looking at how we can be a lot more targeted. And that's where it is things like saying, well, hang on a second, um, B2B uh, plastics and B2B cardboard are clean in large volumes and in consolidated locations in distribution centres and warehouses. We've never we've never really looked at it. Yeah, um, no so, hanging so fruit we, as such. There's still a lot of hanging fruit out there. We're certainly in the between now and the end of 2025. We'll also be going much harder on the um, the sustainable packaging guidelines um, for obvious reasons that we've been discussing, and 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 then at the same time um, looking at how we actually reset and, and rebuild community confidence and trust in the system. All the while. Um, and this is the part, this is where the, the, the two horizon approach ha- comes in, we have to be preparing for what's over the horizon beyond 2025. So there's a there's a complementary strategy that we're working on in that space, which is really about having the conversations with the rest of the sectors around 
what's possible because I think genuinely we're probably not too far away from one another. It's just we might be using a different language and we might historically have been looking going, well, you're a threat or you're my competitor when, in fact, if we actually work together, we could actually achieve something pretty powerful. Um, there are there are whole new um, data systems. There's things like a voluntary, um, well, starting voluntary but ideally ending up mandatory protocols and expectations around how packaging stewardship schemes should be run um, because if, if from an APCO point of view, if members were to have strong, tougher obligations um, that force them into finding pathways forward that they have to bring in their own um, recycled content um, and or participate in, in stewardship schemes, that's a great outcome, but we then need to know that those schemes are legitimate, are actually delivering. So how do we evaluate those to give members certainty but also to give government and the community certainty so we avoid red cycle or a red cycle style scenario? Um, so there, there's a lot of opportunity here. There's a lot of you'll start to see APCO working quite differently. Chris, we've covered a lot of ground. We've clarified a few sticky points. The key takeaways for me are that the targets are catalysts for change and the fact that we're not meeting them. First of all, come, it isn't really such a surprise. It's been hinted at um, along the way. But it's not that we are now going to change those targets. We need to use them to uh, make us drive harder. We're not going to down our tools at this point. I think industry is pretty on board with that. Certainly, um, that's the message I'm getting. We have an opportunity here as well through a robust reset to move towards a whole of systems approach that will capture the entire value chain. That is going to take a lot more than just conversations. It is going to take action. Any final message you'd like to deliver to the industry, Chris? Look, it's a timely wake up. Um, it'll be confronting for some, particularly those that have done a lot of heavy lifting. Um, but as a, as a system, we owe it to ourselves, um, as, as industry, we owe it to ourselves and the investments that have already been made. We also owe it to the community who have raised expectations, particularly post-COVID. Post the game's changed um, and the politicians are reflecting that. So we have to work differently. We have to work better together um, and, and look over the horizon. We know that there's only so much we can advance between now and the end of 2025. That's given. Um but we have to keep moving forward and in the background be, be, be having those tough conversations or those enlightening conversations with other stakeholders across the system about what's possible and how can we how can we work better. Um, and then in turn, obviously, that and that includes government. Um, but that's scary and it's uncomfortable for all, but equally it's exciting because we can reset the system. It has to be done. If we're going to achieve a circular economy for packaging by 2030 or anywhere close, um, we've got to do it together. Together it must be, and we need to do it starting today. So that's all we have time for, folks. We're going to wrap it up here. Chris, I do, do look forward to continuing this discussion in a future episode because I am absolutely certain there's going to be a lot more to discuss around all the work that APCO is doing. Thank you very much for joining us today. Cheers. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Lindy. And of course, thanks to our audience for joining us today. Don't forget, if you enjoyed what you've heard, you can tell a colleague about us so they too can benefit from the show. We'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative discussion. But until then, have a great day. The PKN Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of PKN Packaging News, owned and published by Yaffa Media. 
The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of PKN Packaging News, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast audio, please contact us via the website or send an email to editor at packagingnews.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's packaging industry at packagingnews.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.